I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Uh, This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that deserves another inspection, with some background information on actors, directors, and perhaps a half-amusing antidote or two. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers, so if you want to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope you do, please recommend the podcast to a friend and give us a favorable review. It's June, and we're capping off our theme of talkin' walkin', covering some fun films starring the one, the only, Christopher Walken. This week, we round things out with 1997's spectacular Suicide Kings. Join us! When I was a kid, I hated when my mother, who arguably was just looking for a few scant minutes for herself, would sit down and watch one of her rare indulgences when it came to TV. WTTW would be playing the PBS Mystery intro, which was always a bait and a switch for a kid. You get this cool, creepy, gothic animation starting up, graveyard scene with mourners, gentlemen with dark umbrellas, and a crowd of socialites all dressed in black having tea while a body slowly slipped out of sight into a quiet pond. Then, of course, the brief mood would be shattered by the acknowledgement that the program was made possible by a grant from Mobile Corp. And then someone would come on and a seven-year-old Chris would just abhor that feature. It would be a Hercule Poirot mystery or a stodgy Sherlock Holmes mystery. These were things that I would come to love as I got older, and I have to credit my mother for planting that seed, but... Man, back in the day, I was your standard issue bratty kid, and I did not want to watch that. Thankfully, when I hit 12, I started to appreciate a good mystery. Hitchcock stopped being a punishment and actually turned into something to get excited about. Murder on the Orient Express, Spellbound, The 7% Solution, all became things to revel in. By junior high, I was knee-deep in a love for Psycho and Lifeboat. By college, I was turned on to Rope and Blood Simple, both future episodes for sure. And as I made my way, devouring whatever I could, in some cases, such as this film, I managed to find it first before it was even recommended to me. These were rare wins. Usually when I screen films in my dorm room, here was the typical response. Out of eight people who may be in attendance, two would actually enjoy the film with me. Three would have found the experience to be alright, meaning they had a good evening, but they didn't enjoy the film. And the remaining three would have hated it and would have been heckling the experience and me, myself, as the host. 
This happened for years. Rare was it that old Chris would actually get one on the board and pick a winner. But in the case of today's feature, this was loved by the room as a whole. Suicide Kings was a discovery made by way of watching trailers for other films in the lead up to its release on video in 1998. Once I found it at a blockbuster to rent, I did so. Once it became available to buy at a local Target, I did so. It was a no-brainer. You have a tight crime thriller with deep overtones. Sign me up. Oh, and it has young Indiana Jones and Christopher Walken in it? This is a no-brainer. Bring it on. Hey, enough of my yakking. Let's get to this trailer. You think old Carlo is just going to sit there? It's Carlo Bartolucci. He's a capo to capo, okay? Hey, what are you doing? You're our hostage, Charlie. My sister Lisa's kidnapped. The kidnappers demanded $2 million ransom. I got nothing to do with kidnapping. Kidnappers sent a package. If she loses an eye, you lose an eye. What's in a package? Freak! Ah! I'm gonna kill you! Ah! What's going on in here? Uh, you scared us. I came here to play poker, guys. That's what you told me you were gonna be doing. That's why you wanted to use the house, right? That is not poker. Get out right now. Come on, let's go. Hey, and take your weird junkie friend with you. They're chopping my fingers off, Ira. You cut his finger off. What do you think he's gonna do to five, four guys? Who cut his finger off? For five college friends, the answer to their problem is tied to a chair in the guest room. But what started out as a minor kidnapping... Is that my father's gun? You know we're not allowed up in my parents' bedroom? ...is turning into a major mistake. This one, you are not gonna believe. Get a hold of Lono. Hey, graphite? Only the best. (laughs) Graphite. What did I say, huh? I'm going back to steal. Whoever's behind this kidnapping is using an inside player. One of us might be in on it. I will smoke him out. I That's just the demand. They needed $2 million. If you can't take the heat, go in a kitchen. Pretty funny for a guy with nine fingers. All they got was the finger. Suicide Kings. What are we supposed to do with this? Oh, I was going to make brownies. Local New York man of importance and rumored ex-gangster Charlie Barrett, as played by Christopher Walken, goes to his favorite restaurant and requests his own normal private table, only to see two young gentlemen sitting there enjoying themselves. They invite him over and make small talk with him, revealing themselves to be Avery, as played by Henry Thomas, and Max, as played by Sean Patrick Flannery. It seems Charlie actually knows Avery's father, and upon this they make some even further small talk and really hit it off. They're then joined by a third, a young man named Brett, played by Jay Moore, who comes shares a drink, and ends up inviting Charlie to come along with them 
as their camaraderie escalates. They say, hey, Charlie, join us. We're going to have a boys' night out. Dinner, drinks, the whole nine yards. And Charlie, enjoying the time he's having with these young men, clearly out of college, says, sure, I haven't had a boys' night out in a long time. Once they're in the car, we get an intercut scene of the youth practicing their abduction of Charlie, and then we get to see the real thing happen. Driving to Queens and playing it off as if he made a wrong turn, Avery nervously tries to make small talk with Charlie, while Max and Brett sit in the back seat preparing to chloroform him. You know, for an old guy, he puts up quite a fight, nearly causing three different accidents as the two young men are barely able to restrain him from behind and attempt to first chloroform him and then later, as a last-ditch effort, sedate him by way of syringe before he is whisked into unconsciousness. Upon waking, Charlie is startled to find himself duct-taped to a wheeled office chair, facing three youths now with the addition of their friend TK, as played by Jeremy Sisto, who explains they have grabbed him and what they need him for. You see, Avery's sister Elise, who is dating Max, has been kidnapped and is being ransomed for $2 million. The youth have brazenly kidnapped Charlie to try to have him help them use his connections and clout to get her back. Charlie is rather calm at first, but he begins to worry when he notices that there is an IV bag strapped next to the chair, and there is clearly blood on TK's scrubs. It's TK, Mr. Baird will take good care of you. This. You're our hostage, Charlie. For what? Mr. Barrett, we need your help. My sister, Elise, has been kidnapped. The kidnappers demanded $2 million ransom. Now, my father has money, but it's all on paper. He went to the cops. It's a big mistake. I got nothing to do with kidnapping. Oh, come on, Charlie, we know that. But you got contacts, the kind that know how to fix these things. And you got money, cash, that's the good kind. So we're also going to have to ask you to put up the ransom. It's too bad about your friend. You're right, there was a time I could have done something. These days, I'm a businessman. I pay my taxes like your moms and dads do. Once a criminal, always a criminal. That's what my dad says, Charlie. Yeah, what's your mother say? Stop that! Stop it! Guys, what you did to me is unbelievable. You're right, there was a time. I've been looking to four dead bodies by now. But strange as it seems, I understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. So I'm going to offer you an opportunity. Get out of this. Now. Before it gets so fucked up, nobody could ever recover. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, you do. Untie me. Pour me a drink. <laughs> I call my car. We act like nothing happened. I can't remember anything. Okay. You took my word. Oh, okay. Go ahead. You can go. What uh, kind of drink would you like? This is bullshit. Untimely pour me a drink. I told you you wouldn't take it seriously. Shut up. I fucking told Shut you. Up. We didn't have a choice. What is that? Is that blood? After my father missed his deadline, the kidnappers sent a package. Now they will continue to send these packages. 
every 24 hours until they get their money. Package. What? What's in the package? Look, Charlie, whatever condition Elise is returned home in is the exact same condition you will be returned to your home. Whose blood is that? If she loses an eye, you lose an eye. If she loses an ear, you get to lose an ear. If she is hurt, you will be hurt. Listen to me. By saving Lisa, you get to save yourself. I asked you, whose blood is that? Understandably, Charlie is horrified to see his own left pinky finger with his signet ring sitting in a bucket of ice. After an understandable moment of rage, he collects himself and begins to use his resources to help locate the missing Elise, calling his attorney first, who in turn contacts Charlie's driver and his bodyguard, Lono, as played by Dennis Leary, to begin shaking people down. Now, at this point, I'm going to interrupt my own plot analysis here to give you all a sidebar. <laughs> this film was made just at the point of the 1990s when we were starting to hit our saturation level with Dennis Leary. Now, you gotta understand, Leary had been writing pretty high since 1990, a comic that came out of the Boston comedy boom scene of the late 80s, a contemporary of Lenny Clark, Mario Cantone, Dana Gould, and still, controversially, Bill Hicks, which we will address momentarily. Leary had two things going for him. In the late 80s, he did a series of one-man shows in London that ended up giving him a large international fan base before coming back stateside with a very polished act. This would eventually become his show of No Cure for Cancer. Second thing going for him, he had worked to his advantage a meteoric rise on MTV in the late 80s and early 90s by appearing on sketches for the game show Remote Control, and then later was tapped to do a series of commercials for MTV proper that were just him ranting in general, sometimes about bands, sometimes about his version of Gen X PSAs. Either way, you got stuff like this. One word. Drugs. I grew up in the 70s. We did a lot of drugs and listened to a lot of bad music and wore a lot of stupid clothing like bell bottoms and platform shoes. So you want some advice? Here it is. These are your pants. These are your pants on drugs, okay? Five words, folks. KC and the Sunshine Band. Cocaine. There's a good idea. I want to do a drug that makes my penis small, makes my heart explode, makes my nose bleed, and sucks all my money out of the bank. Could I do that? Could I sit in a room and sweat for seven hours? I want to make this face all night. I want to talk to complete idiots about nothing for hours on end with no penis and a nosebleed. Is that possible? Where do I sign up for that? And when it comes to crack, I got a little piece of advice for you folks. Never do a drug named after a part of your own ass, okay? I think you hear me knocking, and I think I'm coming in. I'm already in. I'm wandering around the house, and you know what? I found your bell bottoms. <laughs> Commercial success for Leary boomed, and in 1993 alone, it saw his special and album, the aforementioned No Cure for Cancer, drop, as filled by Ted Demi. He appeared in five films that year alone, some of which are on the docket for future episodes. The Sandlot, Who's the Man?, Demolition Man, Loaded Weapon 1, and Judgment Night. Almost 
all of these specifically had scenes, with the exception of The Sandlot as a family film, where Leary was given free reign to do what he did, rant about things that angered him. If you made a film and put Leary in it, you intentionally gave him blank pages to improvise with. He was on fire. This movie was filmed in 96 and released in 97. Leary never had a hard slump per se, but this is right around the time when his freestyling was being dialed back on projects he was associated with. He acted in things, and he started getting more family-friendly fare, such as A Bug's Life, and this film is sort of a tipping point of that. It's a last gasp of letting Leary go wild and chew some scenery. In fact, with the exception of the reminiscing scene he shares with the hostess that serves to flesh out Charlie's good guy character in this film, well, good enough for a mobster, almost 90% of what Leary does in Suicide Kings can be completely cut out, as it does not drive the story along nor does it really fit in the tighter drama on screen between the boys and Charlie, sharing that living room space together. Like most things in my life, I was a day late and a dollar short when it came to Dennis Leary. Rarely did I lead the charge on anything hip, and when I did, by the time other people liked it, it was already out of style. My friends and I didn't discover Leary's comedy until 1997, upon us entering high school, way after anybody could give a fuck. Turned on to Leary by my friend Matt, I would listen to No Cure for Cancer on my Discman while I would angrily mow the lawn. I had the stand-up special that I purchased on VHS, which my father found but thankfully did not exercise parental review on. Um, I ended up buying Lock and Load when it dropped in 1997, and in hindsight, I kind of feel like I was the only one who did. Now, if you quit smoking now, every cigarette takes three minutes off your leg. If you quit now, you can live an extra ten years. If you quit now, you can live an extra twenty years. If you, hey, I got two words for you, okay? Jim Fix. Remember Jim Fix, the big famous jogging guy? Jogged 15 miles a day, did a jogging book, did a jogging video, and dropped out of a massive heart attack. When? When he was fucking jogging, that's right! What do you want to bet it was two smokers who found the body the next morning and went, hey, that's Jim Fix, isn't it? Wow, what a fucking tragedy. Come on, let's go buy some bots. You got to understand that right around this point of the 1990s comedian Bill Hicks, his work was under review. Hicks himself had died in 1994 of pancreatic cancer, and he and Leary were both friends and contemporaries of one another which explains why so many people are quick to accuse Leary of stealing some of the main points for his No Cure for Cancer show from Hicks's own act. The gym fix routine, the smoking on stage itself, his dress and persona, these are all indeed hard similarities that get compared to Hicks. Others have accused Leary of being an intellectual property thief, but I think the truth is a little more nuanced. You see, two people performing comedy as contemporaries, running in the same circles, the same time, same cultural epoch, they're going to ape each other's habits and mannerisms. Leary most likely did lift Fix's routine, but the rest of it was just zeitgeist. Hicks died in 94, and he can't speak for himself, so it's sort of unfair. Leary has had to spend the last 25 years trying to argue his position on things with a dead man and a dead man's supporters. 
Judging by his success with his several TV projects and being part of an Ice Age franchise as done by DreamWorks, I think he's been able to quote-unquote bounce back. But regardless, Leary has some great stuff in this film proper. I'm just not actively going to cover any of it, so instead you got this long-winded sidebar about Leary himself. So, that being said, why don't we get back to Suicide Kings as we left it. This is only a test. We now return you to regular programming. While the boys and Charlie wait, they drink together and have some conversations about the good old days, getting to hear about what kind of gangster Charlie really was. They're suddenly joined by a fifth friend, Ira, as played by a steam-sealing Johnny Galecki who's angry that everybody is in his living room, revealing that they are all squatting at his parents' house. He was under the impression that they were just going to have a guy's evening, get together, play some poker, have a good time. Now there's a bleeding gangster tied to an office chair on his mother's rug. The fuck is going on in here? Shit, Ira, you scared the shit out of us! Oh, well then uh, you can imagine how I feel. I came here to play poker, guys. That's what you told me you were going to be doing. That's why you wanted to use the house, right? That's why I let you use the house. Guys, this... That is not poker. Why is this man here? Why is he taped to my father's favorite chair? Who the hell is he? Oh, it's shit. And who tracked mud into the house? You guys got your shoes on. You know the rules. Everyone's shoes off right now. Parents just had these floors refinished. I mean, come on. You guys are killing me here. You said poker. You know, beer, pornos, pot, poker. Anyone? Hello? I don't know what's going on here. You know, I, I don't want to know. What, what, what I do know is that whatever the hell it is, it has gone way, way too far. Everybody out right now. Whoa, Come on, I, let's I, go. I, I, relax. I, I, relax, relax, relax. No, give me one reason to relax. Ira, we can't leave right now. No, you can and you will. Ira, Ira, listen to me. Elise has been kidnapped. What? Is she okay? We don't know. Well, how come you fuckers didn't tell me? Oh, my God. And, and what does that have to do with him? Oh, great. Where did you come from? Me? Nowhere. I, I was just looking around. Well, don't. Everyone, just stop and stay where I can see you. Uh, no, Avery. Look, man, I'm, I'm really, really sorry, but I just want everyone out of here right now. Hey, and take your weird fuck junkie friend with you. The chop of my fingers off, Ira. That's what the kidnappers did to the girls, so that's what your friends are doing to me, even though I had nothing to do with it. Charlie. Ira, look at that! <laughs> I get it. You guys cut his finger off. Holy shit! You cut his fucking finger off! Oh my god, what the hell is wrong with you guys? Oh, my God. My God, you guys fucked up. Do you know who this guy is? Sir, sir, I am sorry. I am ah! sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, they told me nothing about this. They never tell me anything, these guys. In fact, I barely even know these fucking guys. 
I cannot believe you cut his fucking finger off. That's what they did. He's going to kill us. I mean, you do understand that, don't you? That's what the man does to people when they disrespect him. What do you think he's going to do to five ass four assholes who cut his fucking finger off? They drink more, play cards together, and, in a clear nod to Hitchcock's rope, Charlie starts to play the young men off of each other, unraveling more and more of the story for us, revealing that the kidnapping of Elise was an inside job done by one of the young men in the very room. He eventually settles his sights on Max, who was with Elise at the time of her abduction, and after making him question his own narrative of how things went down, he gets him to admit that he's sorry for his role in all of this. The room goes nuts, with Brett and TK tackling Max and preparing to cut off his own digits as retribution for his part in all of this. Max, on his part, goes limp and doesn't resist their attacks, until Charlie calmly turns to Avery, quietly protesting in the corner, having him reveal himself to actually be the mastermind. We fucked up, alright? We got the wrong fucking guy in the chair! TK, hurry up! You remember the fucking plan, Max? You fucked us! Uh, Do it, TK, now! We cut the wrong guy's uh, finger well, take off! Take it easy. Yeah. Take it easy. Yeah. No. Avery. No. No, no, come on. Uh, okay, Brett, Brett, Brett. You're right, you're right, you're right. We got the wrong guy. We cut the wrong guy's finger off. Okay, but it wasn't. It wasn't Max. It wasn't Max, man. It was. It wasn't Max. It was me. It was me. I did it. Oh fuck. No. No. Oh. Look, it was. It was a Dartmouth UNC game. I took the points. It was a no-brainer. I lost $25,000. I didn't think it would happen twice. So, you know, I let it ride. By the end of the day, I was in Antoine for $50,000. I couldn't go to my dad. Not again. I just figured the worst thing that could happen was I, I just pay the debt off for the rest of my life. That's all. Oh, no. Oh, and then Antoine laid the dead off. You know, it's just like Charlie said. It was, it was my lucky day. You know, they were gonna give me a way out. And he sent these gorillas, man. You never seen gorillas like these guys. They were gonna fucking kill me. They were gonna kill me for real. Shut up. Look, it, it wasn't. No, they told me that they were just gonna hold Elise. They were gonna hold Elise. Put them down, Brad. Put it down. No one would be hurt. They swore to me that no one would be hurt. I didn't know what to do. I was so fucking scared. No. Max, uh, he didn't have it. I just needed his help, man. He did it for me. It's not his fault. Those bastards, man, they asked for $2 million. In the note, they asked for $2 million. That wasn't the plan. They told me that no one would be hurt. They told me that... Uh, they would just hold a lease. Oh, I'm fucking sorry. They were gonna kill me.
You kidnapped your own fucking sister. Are you fucking out of your mind? I can't believe you dragged us into this. What about us, you motherfucker? Oh, uh, what about us? We were gonna fucking play poker, and now we're all gonna fucking get killed. You motherfucker, explain to me. You're a fucking individual. Get out of own fucking sister. Get the fuck off of me. Get off of me, goddammit. Get off of me. Avery lost a large sum of money and couldn't pay off his debts properly. He couldn't go to his father as he knew the old man would not help him. He was approached by two low-level mobsters who bought his debt and then so kindly explained that he was now looking at a way out. They could fake ransoming his sister and then his father would have to pay the ransom, erasing the debt and making everything square. But after they took Elise, they spiked the price of her freedom and started sending body parts to Avery's shame and horror. None of this was supposed to have happened this way. Ira loses his temper and attacks Avery, much to Charlie's approval. It seems the old man's taken a shine to the lad. Lono finally has caught up with all the background inquiries and arrives at the house to free Charlie from the boys. In a hilarious scene, Charlie orders him to wound Brett, just in general for being an asshole. Charlie is still, though, a stand-up guy and leaves with Lono for the hospital, and he puts up the money for Elise's ransom. They receive a call that Elise will be at a specific hospital drop-off. Avery, Charlie, and Lono are all going. They arrive and are horrified to find that Elise is nowhere to be found. Devastated, Avery runs up and down the halls of the hospital, searching for his sister. Charlie takes it all in, and then has Lono drive him to the mobster's apartment, as played by Brad Garrett and Frank Madrano. Here, Charlie and Lono interrogate them, but the two men insist they never kidnapped anybody. Thinking they're lying, though, Lono, on Charlie's orders, executes them. Confused, Charlie is shown to take the whole scene in, thinking very deeply. We then smash cut to several months later. On a yacht, where Max has been staying, Lono wakes him and holds him at gunpoint, telling him to come on deck and talk to Charlie. Max exits from the cabin and is followed by Elise. It's revealed that they both did this a long con to help wipe Avery's debts clean and to con Charlie into paying for all of it. Avery never had any idea that his sister and his best friend had played him. Charlie looks at the two of them, and then tells Max he now understands why Max thought Elise was so special. The lovers embrace for a last time. Charlie takes his money back, exits the boat, while Lono shoots them. So, like, we're three for three here on not having an upbeat ending this month. Sorry about that. So let's unpack this. You have a fantastic cast here. A really decent script and some genuinely great plot turns. It wasn't even supposed to have this ending. 
Three different endings were shot, two of them being considered still happy. Ending A, one where Charlie and Lono understand that young love needs to conquer all, and Charlie lets them actually keep a bit of the money, walking off happy to have solved the mystery of the con, and leaving them to have their life together. Ending B, an ending where Charlie understands their motives and spares them, but he still takes his money back and he orders Lono to sink the boat, shooting holes in it and causing the lovers to comedically jump into the water and then embrace while Charlie watches from the dock and gives a good-natured laugh. All still positive. Here's the problem. Test audiences hated those two endings, neither of which apparently closed the loop on a comeuppance that was so richly deserved for Max and Elise for playing everyone. So the third and dark ending involving their executions was the one that was actually used in the final cut of the film. Upon its release, the film was actually met with mixed to negative reviews, which really makes me hate critics. You see, at the time, they kept comparing it to Tarantino films, and while yes, this was technically the late 90s when people were trying to do their best to imitate Pulp Fiction, and there are some really heinous ones out there that came out. Um, I'm looking at you, Two Days in the Valley. But to me, this isn't even in that same camp of film. This is even in the same genre. This is a mystery thriller. There's some very plot-specific violence, and it has more in line with something like The Usual Suspects to me than anything Tarantino was related to. And I also have to admit, as I age, I find that the critics I enjoyed reading, especially when I was younger, were just stodgy old men, the likes of which I would not sit across from now and talk movies with. Someday, hey, that's probably going to be me, ranting in a corner about how people don't use enough practical special effects work in major motion pictures while someone is forced to go tell Uncle Chris to keep it down after all he is ruining the funeral. May the circle be unbroken. Still, one of the most impressive things that this film has going for it is Walken. He is amazing, as if you would have any doubts, but geez, heightening his performance is the simple fact that he spends 90% of this film tied to a chair. He doesn't move, he barely gets to gesture. In many ways, he's just having to emote and use subtlety to play the part of a kidnapped but savvy ex-mobster. He is Frank White, as if Frank White didn't die and went legit and made it to old age. And simply having him in that chair leaves room for some levity and some genuinely amazing comedic moments in the film. Uh, my grandmother ended up watching this film with me back in the day, and she broke up laughing over this next scene. So all I can tell you is, hey everybody, Anne gets it, so you should enjoy it too. doing it here. No, he is not doing it there. Well, I guess he's not doing it at all then. How's that, Ira? I can untie one of his hands. Max, what are you, crazy? Do you remember what happened the last time this guy's hands were untied? He almost killed all four of us. His hands stayed. Why don't we just wheel the whole contraption, the, the chair with Mr. Barrett in it? We wheel it in the bathroom and 
And? Well, I don't know. We can tie one of his hands to something in there. We'll tie the other to something else. Yeah, what about the third hand? What? What third? The one to unzip his fly, pull his dick out. Oh! Aim it. Please aim it. Aiming is good. What the hell is that? It's a vase. Hasn't anybody here ever heard of a bedpan? No. TK, I'm give sorry, it. Sorry, you Come have a better on. idea? TK, it's from Sri Lanka. Here, for you. This isn't funny, TK. The version of Suicide Kings that we screened here at the LSCE was the Artisan Special Edition DVD from 1998's release. It's currently considered an Amazon choice item and can be obtained for the hefty sum of $6.08, brand new as of this recording. You, of course, could also get the video on demand for about $3.99, but why would you? To date, there is yet to be a Blu-ray release, but uh, I would argue this movie is just asking for a more complete version to be put out. Still, your DVD comes with director's commentary, the alternate endings, the trailers, and, you know, those oh-so-fun and dated cast and crew notes. Those, those were always good. You could do far worse with your hard-earned cash. Now, remember folks, we don't get paid anything to recommend that you buy stuff, you know, for now, I can always hope, but we just want to say we think it's important that people keep buying physical media uh, so that these great studios can keep releasing the films that we love to watch. And again, how can you go wrong? So that's going to wrap things up for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street, as well as close out our month of talking walking. Don't worry, he'll be back. July is going to see us kick off a whole new theme, addressing a simple question that we all can ruminate on for a week. Hey, what's your fantasy? If you like us, please follow us on our Facebook page, The Linden Street Cinema Experience, and recommend us to friends. We're also on Instagram at lsce underscore podcast. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an iTunes user, please, we would greatly appreciate a five-star and a review. If you want to get in touch make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. So until next time, take care and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody.